The Rick Jensen Show on AM 1150 and 1017FM WDEL. A few years ago, Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall Long put together Delaware's Behavioral Health Consortium. It consists of so many different levels, EMTs, nurses, emergency room doctors, police, behavioral therapists, counselors, treatment centers. The goal is to substantially reduce the number of people who are dependent upon opioids. Then COVID hits, and I'm curious to know um, where we stand with that organization. During the pandemic, Bethany Hall Long and Dr. Sandra Gibney, who has been an emergency department physician for many, many years, have been out in the streets, and they've been hitting the most at-risk neighborhoods from Dover to Wilmington, not only testing for coronavirus with their team, but also doing a lot of surveys on opioid abuse. They're both on the phone right now. Sandra, thanks for being on. Good morning, Rick. Oh, hey there, Sandra. Hey, and uh, and Bethany, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having us today. So really, my first question, before we get into what's happening now and moving on in the future, I'd like to know what what is the status of the Behavioral Health Consortium um, what sort of you know organizational status did you have by the beginning of the pandemic? What sort of data uh, had you accumulated by the beginning of the pandemic? And then what has happened since? Wow, that is a question that I'll jump in first, but certainly my good friend, Dr. Gibney, who chairs the uh, Access and Treatment Committee, which is one of the six committees of the Behavioral Health Consortium. What we did, Rick, was in response to um, Governor Carney and others recognizing that mental health and substance abuse was a real issue, put together a roadmap that was actually came from the people across Delaware, Sussex, Ten, and Newcastle, where we came out with 117 really solid recommendations, like you indicated, with the big issue on the table, the big A of addiction, which is better known to say substance use disorder these days. We prefer to say that or behavioral health. And we also know that we had a lot of other challenges before COVID and before the epidemic with issues from autism to Alzheimer's. So it's a broad cradle-to-grave approach. But the opioid epidemic is spot on. And I'm so proud of having Dr. Gibney and terrific folks at the table, like you indicated, and many at the sub-level who've gone out, who've worked hard to improve things like getting people treatment right away when they need it. So state agencies recognized we had a fractured system. So, Rick, we had to fill in gaps. We had to break down the um, cracks that we had created so that people got wraparound care. So when somebody showed up to, like, Dr. Gibney, whether in the ED or she and I are out on the street, we could pick up the phone. So DSAM created bridge clinics. We created phone resources, training. So a lot of good stuff has continued and is continuing. And honestly, if we didn't have these things in place, our opioid death rate would be even higher. And I'll let our good friend Dr. Gibney in a bit talk about some of the other things the prescribers have done to cut back on opioid prescriptions. Uh, There's just a lot we could talk about. Um, The only thing I will say, then I'll turn it back, uh, from a numbers perspective, uh, our percent of deaths each year uh, has actually the percentage of deaths has decreased, so the foot is off the gas pedal, but we got a lot of work to do. And COVID has just, really, really amplified with social isolation and depression and suicide, really the issues of what we have to do. And so 
We had 431 deaths in uh, 2019, and this year thus far we have 293 suspected. And we've got the holidays. So being on your show is a great gift to Dr. Gibney and I to get the word out. So I'll, gotcha. I'll, I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that, Beth, because we've seen around the country more and more opioid abuse, more and more deaths and, and overdoses. So to what do you attribute the fact that there are fewer, and it looks going in like there, there, we will hopefully end with fewer deaths this year as well. To what do you attribute that? Um, well, you know, I wouldn't say yet. I would love to be able to say that. And, Dr. Gibney, I'm going to let you chime in here, too. We know usually in the months of November and December, our rates go higher um, just because of the holiday season and how individuals are feeling. I would attribute a lot of our success to the plans that we really have put in place. You know, having the Loxone, the antidote in the hands of persons, Division of Public Health, DSAM, Division of Youth and Family Services, really listening and working with our nonprofit partners and our hospital systems, really making sure when somebody shows up in that ED, we put a system in place where electronically they can find where those bids are. And so, Dr. Gibney, why don't you chime in here, too, because I know this is kind of in your bailiwick. Yeah, um, I think from the perspective, Driver uh, perspective, there's been so many things that have changed um, for us to help kind of uh, put the finger in the dam of how we're, we're, you know, developing folks into issues to begin with, with, with prescriptive drugs. Um, and we know that a lot of folks have gotten their first case of prescription drugs through, through the emergency departments, um, as well as other areas. But importantly, docs um, took a role and so the prescription monitoring program um, has been uh, legendary in controlling our prescriptive practices by letting us know, number one, if this individual is opioid naive or whether or not they have gotten opioids from somewhere else, or it actually gives an opioid score um, to see how at risk that particular individual would be. Um, it also allowed us to see if other prescribers were prescribing opiates to them. Um, it also let us know if they were getting benzodiazepines or other drugs along with opioids. So the legislation that Bethany and others have put into place allowing us to consult the PMP before we prescribe a medication and also putting limits on the first time people have a first pass, because we know when people get opioids in the ED, the chances of getting another prescription of opioids in six months is quite high. So limiting that first blush or that first chance to a one-week supply, requiring authorization if we were to prescribe any more than that, has really put physicians and other practitioners online to say, you know, take responsibility here for this. The other thing I, I, I want to and um, put out there is fentanyl. Um, and, you know, it used to be the big C for cancer. It's like the big F for fentanyl. That has been um, our nemesis um, in killing people. Um, in addition to its, you know, cousins, carfentanil, remifentanil, um, these are very, very potent uh, substances. Uh, a couple of grains of salt equivalent of fentanyl can stop you from breathing. So, Discovering that fentanyl is also an adulterant in many marijuana blunts, in cocaine, discovering that and letting people be aware of that um, in community outreach as well as education has been um, also very important. And the EDs recognizing that our typical drug screen 
did not recognize fentanyl. So we had to up our armamentarium and have fentanyl testing both in the ED and also in our hospital systems. And finally, I don't want to, you know, monopolize here, but changing um, basically the, the, the kind of way that we deal with folks that are struggling with addiction or mental health, which is get them help and help immediately in the ED, whether that means using um, the START program, DTRAN program, the computer program to help them or actually starting them on medication-assisted treatment right there in the ED. And finally, you know, as, as Bethany says, and what we continue, which is typically every couple of weeks, we, we go out and um, distribute free, uh, no charge, um, the reversal agent uh, for opioids, which is naloxone. People call it Narcan. And we do it in response to upticks, hot spots, and actually kind of a crisis response. So those pods are ongoing. We didn't stop for COVID. We wanted to keep Narcan in the hands of people who we know are at risk for overdose, even with the fentanyl. So all those things, including police training, and not that they weren't great, they were magnificent. But handling fentanyl, not contaminating their gloves, not contaminating their self. We had one episode where folks were providing um, CPR. Someone put a fan on because they were hot. Powder blew around. Everyone felt sick. Oh, um, and, yeah, and they weren't sure whether or not that was fentanyl or baby powder, right? That's how potent fentanyl can be. Just simply a little bit of someone put a fan on and that dust was enough to be making people feel bad. And they, you know, so, so these are the things that. Well, that, that, well all, I, I would like to know more about that story, though. So, I mean, did they call EMTs? How'd you find out about this story? So the EMTs were there. Um, yeah. Actually, they, they were the ones that uh, were, were affected. Um, and again, this happens time, time, uh, and it used to be, we didn't really understand how potent we didn't really understand the, the fact that it could be on your gloves and you touch your face and, you know, um, so the, the potency of fentanyl has really, um, come to fore and people are much more aware. And we used to talk about, you know, people say, oh, heroin, heroin, you know, for heroin, but it's really fentanyl. It's really fentanyl, um, right now that we're battling. Um, so what, what has changed in format, in structure of responding to um, a call where someone says it's going to be an overdose? You know, when it comes to the consortium, and you're really talking about putting together a brand new structure of response to this. In fact, uh, Jennifer wants to know, uh, Bethany, uh, when did you start this? What changes have you made? And, uh, and what structures are in place now that had not been in the past? Um, you know, very good question, and we could we could probably take a half a day on your uh, talk show to to go through everything. We did you that know. once. Remember, we did that <laughs> once. It was the whole. Yeah. We, could, we, could we can do it again. Yeah, no, no, no. We just got a few minutes here. Yeah. Minutes. Basically, we are the first in the country. I chair the National Lieutenant Governor Association, and right now, a lot of states are mimicking some of the things Delaware has done. As I stated early on, we recognized we had some fractures, we had breaks. It was not a perfect system, but we did create the first overdose system of care in the in the state, and it's still being tweaked and refined. And Dr. Gibney can, you know, from her perspective from the ED, chime in a little bit on that in a minute. But that is so that we don't go back to the same household, the same neighborhood where families are traumatized repeatedly, where someone has an overdose, plus it keeps our EMTs, our law enforcement agents, uh, not having to go to the same place. 
We have worked collectively, not only in the county of Newcastle with Hero Help, but across the state with our municipalities. And also the Delaware State Troopers Association and others are working diligently to look at uh, substance use and mental health in a different light, creating programs that have uh, not only licensed social workers and counselors available, but making sure that uh, we have the ability for prevention. That's a huge piece. So we've done a lot of work, not only with our schools and our families and nonprofits, but by being on shows like yours, you know, letting people know that we can get you help 24-7. So if you've got listeners who are out there during COVID, which, again, has caused a lot more anxiety and depression and isolation, we have opportunities for you to get care right away. You can contact Help Is Here. You can dial 211. And we have created the Hope Line, um, which is 833-9-HOPE, 833-9-HOPE, DE. you got to put the DE on the end. Uh, So, again, we have put in place these systems. Huge charitable trust, last thing I'll say, because I know there's probably something clinically that uh, that I answer. But we we were selected by a large foundation called Pew Charitable Trust. We were one of three states in the country picked because of the work that we were doing uh, in the leadership. Now, we have not been perfect. I cannot imagine if we had not had the incredible leadership of all of those on this consortium uh, who have really given hard. We would have, our, our opioid death rate would be much higher. It's still not where we want it. And we still know people struggle. People are embarrassed if they have anxiety or depression. You know, it is okay not to be okay. And we need folks to recognize this no different than if you had diabetes or heart disease or cancer. During COVID, reach out. You know, we have resources. And if you don't have funds now, if you're unemployed, we have federal dollars, programs in place, please call us. And I think Dr. Gibney would agree that that is the biggest challenge we often face in certain communities is a sense of embarrassment. I have uh, a couple of questions here from listeners. Uh, one's uh, from, well, let's get to Chris in Newark. It's a political question. Um, and I want to get to Sandra Gibney on COVID now and what it's looking like in those uh, at-risk populations as well. Chris in Newark, we've seen some Democrats not debate. If you run for governor, <laughs> I guess the, well, there you go. Uh, will you promise uh, to, to, to be in debates? And if you are ever governor, will you promise to be in debates and not bail? Um, I have pretty much think for this year I can speak for where I am presently as lieutenant governor that I and I've Sandy will tell you, I don't turn down any opportunity to listen to the community, to whether it's a debate or a forum. So I anticipate in the future, whatever that career opportunity brings, 2024, I would never turn down the opportunity to meet and speak with people. Patty in Wilmington, what are your medical degrees? And me, or me or Sandy? Yeah, for you, for Bethany, yeah, for you. I, um, you know, I have a uh, Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from Jefferson, those who are Philly, Philly fans. I know you have some Eagles listeners. Also, uh, Medical University of South Carolina, I have a Master's in Community Public Health, which is really helpful here, particularly while we're dealing with issues of equity and uh, homelessness in marginalized communities. That's where I spent time with my husband, who was a military veteran. And then when, uh, in Virginia, George Mason University, I had my Ph.D. in uh, both nursing and healthcare administration, so financial administration and uh, execution, basically policy. But my most important, my most important education came as a farm girl in Sussex <laughs> and uh, with an incredible family and uh, a grandmother who taught me the, the rule 
to whom much is given, much is expected. And so despite the formal education, um, I think the most important thing is like Dr. Gibney, she'll agree with me. It's uh, what we do with one another in our community. So, okay, so you say the most important education was on the farm, chickens, yeah. cows? Um, yeah, we, we had all. We have chickens and cows and horses and pigs and sheep and uh, all kinds okay, of fun. Okay. Okay, so now I'm going to give you my grandfather's number one farm quiz, and then I'm going to move to Sandy. Regarding cows, um, regarding cows, massage or yank? Oh, my gosh. We could have a long time. <laughs> <laughs> he went there again. <laughs> okay, I want to get to Sandra Gibney. Uh, Sandra, Sandra, so... Um, I'm you know, trying to very... control myself here, Rick. <laughs> oh, I know, <laughs> you know. I know. So uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, you and, and Bethany Hall-Long suited up in the PPEs with a team of about 10 people or so. You'd go into the most at-risk neighborhoods in Dover, in Wilmington, and in between, and you'd be going to the motels, you'd be going out to where people were camping out, all kinds of places, and doing surveys of opioid abuse as well as COVID. At the very beginning, I remember... Doctor, you were saying that because these people seem to be, you know, exclusive to each other, they were not getting around other people, that at that time they were not becoming a, uh, a population of coronavirus. I'm wondering, uh, has that maintained or has it changed since then? Yeah, so I, I just want to um, echo what Bethany said in the sense that no one person can address this crisis. It takes a village, and that's what Bethany has really uh, created, a system where a village of people, all these people are addressing it. But as far as the homeless, which is my you know very uh, passionate um, pursuit, um, we know that um, it's going to require ongoing monitoring. And I can tell you that Reverend Lehman has done a, a yeoman's job of being in constant communication with me um, regarding surveilling. And uh, we have kept, we have kept COVID out of the shelter there at the Sunday breakfast mission and others only because of the diligence of him in regard. He takes a temperature for every person that enters that facility as well as asking symptoms and immediately I'll get a call. If he has anyone who has any symptoms or fever, they get isolated and we get right out there and we test them immediately. And we've done that multiple times. We've had to isolate individuals at the shelter to make sure that they're not creating a contagion for the shelter. So that has not stopped. Um, I can, you know, we've been concerned that there's going to be at some point a pandemic fatigue and I would urge your listeners to not take their feet off the accelerator pedal. There is fatigue, but they, this is not the time to stop. We know that small groups and family gatherings and bars and restaurants right now are fueling a lot of our numbers um, and that the younger are being infected, generally less sick, but not always. Um, but the hospitals nowadays are more prepared. We have steroids. We have remdesivir. We have Regeneron, these polyclonal antibodies. But for the vulnerable folks, most importantly, they don't oftentimes have the access to the knowledge and these other educational tools. And that's why partnerships with Sunday Breakfast Mission, YWCA, Salvation Army, uh, Manual Dining Hall, um, as well as these other um, facilities. I'm just reeling off the top. Bethany, we, we've been to all of them, and I continue to go to all of them when needed. So they have my speed dial number. 
and we get it done. And I, Bethany can tell you, I don't know how many folks we hurry up, run down there. Recently, we had a bunch of kids at Sunday breakfast mission. They were throwing up. And Reverend called me and said, I don't think it's COVID, Doc, but what should we do? So a group of families, and we trotted them out, got them tested. I think a lot of people don't know there's families at the Sunday breakfast mission, little kiddos. Yeah. And all of them, thank God, tested negative the, the, and the parents. But, you know, it's diligence. It's due diligence. And that's what what put our numbers down before. And I'm happy to say I go out and, and we've given masks out when we're out on the streets by the thousands. Um, and I'm so happy to go into the supermarket and everyone has a mask on. Um, and, and really that, you know, I don't have to pound that into the ground. Um, but But we do know that. Folks that are vulnerable may not have the access to getting masks. And so every couple of weeks I go and we replenish uh, the mask at Sunday Breakfast Mission as well. And and right now, as you're out there, though, but you're not seeing a resurgence in some of these populations that perhaps other parts of the country are. Well, you know, right now, I'll let Sandy answer a little bit. The one thing I would like to say, Rick, we are, you know, concerned um, statewide and to your listening audience we've done sandy to her credit and all the nonprofit shelters congregate settings in general right uh, we worry and we know that there is an uptick and now some in our um, long-term care settings and due to our young adult population back to campus or around the campus area you know we have to worry and we are seeing our hospitalizations tick and our um, ventilated patients but you are spot on thus far compared to other states across the line in Jersey. We haven't been there. But having the mask is critical. And if any of your listeners um, have a request, our Department of Substance Abuse and Mental Health has a incredible van. They come out to settings. They'll give out not only the naloxone and mental health services. We team up with a food bank. Uh, a lot of great opportunities. So if there's a partner, a church, a community group, a faith-based uh, synagogue, mosque, anyone, you know, we have wonderful tools. Um, and particularly working with our most vulnerable populations, our, you know, communities of color, uh, partnering with groups of faith-based leaders, NAACP, also our Latino leaders. So we are so appreciative to have this opportunity today, Rick, because oh, it yeah, just, really is yeah. breaking down. And, and, think of, and think of other people. That's why I wear a mask. And I say mm-hmm. wear a mask. Why are you going to protect other, other folks? And I always appreciate the fact that you're accessible and you talk about these things and you know, let us know where, where we stand and what's happening. So Se- Lieutenant Governor Bethany Holong, thank you. Sandra Gibney, hey, any, any last word? Rick, yeah. yeah. Yes. Can I make a plug for get your flu shot? Um, and we don't want a twindemic. And so get your flu shot. It's not too late. You need about two weeks after the getting the flu shot until we're you're protected into a sense of getting influenza A and B. You don't want to get COVID and influenza, and it can happen. Um, to tell you what we're doing for the vulnerable folks is we're having a flu shot clinic at Sunday Breakfast Mission for anybody who's uh, homeless or there, staff, others. Um, and public health has been a wonderful partner for us to be able to give these flu shots out, and they're supplying them. And so we'll be doing that the first week in November, getting that out to the vulnerable population. So we'll be inoculating all the homeless folks for influenza. So these are the kind of things that get your flu shot, wear your mask, think of others like you do, Rick, all the time. And thank you so much for letting us speak to your listeners. I know you are one of the broadest all right. No, no, no. You guys, uh, you're, you're, you're awesome. I mean, Dr. Sandra Gibney and your team uh, out there in the field with all these folks and Lieutenant Governor Bethany Holong. Thank you very much. We need to get to a break. News is coming up. Keep it here.